Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you this Lord's Day. You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 15. And as you do so, I will draw your attention to what's on the screen. Thank you, Melissa, for bringing it up for us. You've seen the slides I'm going to show. If you've been here the past couple of months, you've seen them or most of them or something similar to them at some point, but uh, it bears going through this one more time. It really does, because we are in chapter 15. Our text includes verses 5 through 13, and that particular text brings us to the end of three things. It brings us to the end of three sections. All right, you following me? Section number one. So chapter 15, verses 5 through 13, brings us to the end to the body of the epistle. You go all the way back to chapter 1, first 17 verses, you have an introduction. The body of the epistle begins in verse 18 of chapter 1. It ends in verse 13 of chapter 15. And then you have a conclusion through to the end of chapter 16. So you see how significant this is? With these verses, we arrive at the end of the body of the letter. An introduction on one end, a conclusion on the other end. Secondly, these verses bring to an end the second main section in the body of this epistle. So the body begins in chapter 1, verse 18, concludes in chapter 15, verse 13. It subdivides in two main parts, chapters 1 through 11, in which Paul explains the gospel, heavy on the doctrine. And then chapters 12 through 15, verse 13, where Paul applies the doctrine. So we've come to the end of the body of the epistle. We've come to the end of the second major section in the epistle, where Paul applies the gospel. And we've come to the end of the final way in which Paul manifests the significance of the gospel in the life of the believer, namely in how we address opinions. More on that in a moment in the context of the church. So these verses, very significant. They bring us to the end of the entire body, of the second main section, and of Paul's final argument then, really beginning in chapter 12, verse 3, all the way through to 15, 13. So very important verses. You know, you've heard me say this so many times now, that in these first 11 chapters, what we really have is a, just a, a beautiful description of the mercies of God. If we get anything out of those chapters, we must, we must just be overwhelmed by the glory of God as manifested in His mercy towards sinners. We see His mercy in justification, don't we? I was condemned. There was a time in my life when I was not a believer. Therefore, I was a child of wrath. I was under condemnation. Praise God, I believed in the Lord Jesus. I received him. I was made one with the Lord Jesus. And because I was made one with the Lord Jesus, his death became mine and his life became mine. Meaning what? He lived his life for me and he died his death for me. Meaning what? That now because I am one with Christ, God forgives me. And God changes, changes what? The verdict really of my life, hanging over my life from guilty to justified. And he changes the sentence from eternal death to eternal life. That is the mercy of God 
in justification. But we also see the mercy of God in sanctification. Because you see, when I became one with the Lord Jesus through faith, well, He became to me sanctification. See, not only did my union with Him deal with the penalty of my sin, but it dealt with the power of my sin. The Holy Spirit began to reside in me. And of course, I am not what I'm going to be in glory. But I'm certainly not who I was before God saved me. There's been at least a little change. There's been at least a little transformation. There's been at least a little growth in holiness by virtue of what? My union with the Lord Jesus. And see, not only have I become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, but I have become holy in Christ Jesus. That is a great mercy. But not only do we see his mercy in justification, not only do we see his mercy in sanctification, big words I know, but please learn them if you haven't already. We see his mercy in adoption. Because at one time, I was an enemy. At one time, I was an alien, alienated from him. At one time, I was hostile, but I believed in the Lord Jesus. I became one with the Lord Jesus, and rather than an enemy, I became what? A child of God, adopted into his family with all the rights and privileges of that family. Oh, the mercy of God and justification, the mercy of God and sanctification, the mercy of God and adoption, the mercy of God in Christ. And Paul, it doesn't stop there. I mean, he grows and grows and grows in those chapters, doesn't it? Because he takes us then from justification, sanctification, adoption, and he lifts us up into the realms of eternity. And he shows us the mercy of God in election. And he celebrates what? That God foreknew us. He chose us. He foreknew us even before the foundation of the world. And those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he called, yes, in a moment of time. And those whom he called, he justified, having made them one with the Lord Jesus. And those whom he has justified, he glorified. It is an absolute certainty. And so what can separate us as believers in Christ, as children of God, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? absolutely nothing. The mercies of God abounding, superabounding towards sinners, as Paul describes it and lays it before us in the first 11 chapters of Romans. He shifts gears in chapter 12, verse 1. What's his point? Simply this. Once we really get it, I mean, once we really get the mercies of God, once we understand we are debtors to mercy alone, debtors to grace alone. Once we understand, my friend, we are but beggars. That is all we are. We are beggars. Once we understand everything, absolutely everything, flows from a merciful God uh, in Christ, we savor Christ above everything else. What else have we got? What else is there? in comparison to the Lord Jesus. What in this life could possibly compare with the mercy of God toward us in Christ? And what in this life could possibly compare to what awaits us in glory? This becomes what? As we savor God's mercy in Christ, it becomes the supreme motive for action. It becomes the supreme motive for obedience. It's worth saying. It is impossible to believe in Christ and not be transformed by Christ. I know that is not what is sold in many churches today. I know that's not the popular mindset of many professing evangelicals today who think you can believe in Christ and then live 
pretty much however you want. No, 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 my friend. Mercy is free. But when we taste of the mercy of God, we don't stay the same. We can't. How can you stay the same? How can it not transform us? I'm not saying we're going to be perfect. You know we're not going to be perfect. I know I'm not perfect, this side of glory. But it's going to alter the way we think, at least a little. It's going to change what we value. It's going to alter our perception of things. It's going to transform us. That's Paul's point starting in chapter 12, 1 and 2. Look, I've given you the mercies of God the best I can by the power of the Spirit of God. Eleven chapters, mercies, mercies, mercies flowing to you from the throne of God through His Son, the Lord Jesus. Savor Him. And this will become the supreme motive for obedience. And that's what he explains then in chapter 12, verse 1 through to chapter 15, verse 13. And he begins with a consecrated body, doesn't he? Just let me read that for you. Back in chapter 12, way back, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's consecration. That is daily consecration. It is the death of self. Me, 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 me. It is the death of self in the interest of Christ-likeness. That is pillar number one, transformative effect number one, flowing from the mercies of God. And then he adds the second, doesn't he? A renewed mind, chapter 12, verse 2, pillar number two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and pure, what is perfect. And so what is he saying there? Basically what I've put up on the screen it will result, the mercy of God, this transformative effect, impact, it will result in a radical change in worldview. I don't see things like I used to see them, which provides the foundation for discerning the perfection of God's will. No hint of legalism here. I understand now that the law of God, the mercies of God, they're a manifestation of a gracious God. They're the manifestation of a merciful God. They are the manifestation, the revelation of a God who loves me and wants what is best for me. And having tasted of his mercy, my heart cry now is this, thy will be done, not mine. What is your will that I might actually obey? Those become the two pillars. You have a consecrated body, a sacrificed body, and a renewed mind. And then Paul really picks it up then from chapter 12, verse 3. You see where he ends. I've already mentioned it a few times. Chapter 15, verse 13. And he stays with that, those two pillars. And basically he's saying, look, this renewed, transformed mind, this consecrated body, these mercies of God now lived out in life. This is what it's going to look like. It's going to change the way we look at ourselves going to result in sober judgment, humility, poverty of spirit. That's going to be our starting point for everything. It's going to transform the way we look at other believers, our fellow believers right here at Grace Community Church. It's going to be marked by genuine love. It's going to change the way we view our enemies. Active compassion becomes the governing principle, the motive from which we function and view our enemies. The way we perceive our rulers, grateful subjection. Boy, that's going to be a test, isn't it? If Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are the ballot come November, that's going to be a test, isn't it, my friends? That will be a test. 
grateful subjection, God's mercy in action, how we influence our neighbors. I hope I didn't make, just make you sick in the stomach. Forget I even said that. All right, I'm sorry. I make you sick in the stomach. Come back to God's word. Come back to where our hope really resides, a biblical heavenly perspective, right? Our citizenship is above. That's not idle escapism. We want to transform and affect the society and the country in which we live, but we recognize our God reigns, and at times His ways are not our ways, and His ways are inscrutable, and we are called to be faithful even in the midst of the storm. That is mercy in action. How we approach our neighbors, fervent love, our desires. There he's really thinking of our self-centered desires. And he speaks of proper walking. And the final manifestation, opinions. In the context, it's a long one. Chapter 14, verse 1, right through to chapter 15, verse 13. It's where we've been the past four Sundays. It's where we conclude today. He recognizes that in the church at Rome, there are problems brewing, issues brewing over these opinions. Believers' relationship to the ceremonial law. Believers' relationship to culture. These aren't the most important issues on the face of the earth, but these are issues that if they're not put in their proper place, threaten the church and threaten the unity of the church. And so he says we are to walk in perfect harmony. He actually gives, this is review, we've been here. He gives three remedies for dealing with these issues. The application for us, I firmly believe, has to do with those issues, those points of contention that have to do with matters of conscience to which the Bible doesn't speak directly or definitively. How are we going to handle that in such a mixed group, such a mixed multitude? Remedy number one, don't judge, welcome. That's the first 13 verses of chapter 14. Remedy number two, don't destroy, edify. That's the rest of chapter 14. First four verses, here's where we were last week. Remedy number three, first four verses of chapter 15, don't ignore honor. And then he wraps it all up. Ending this second part of the epistle, which began back in chapter 12, verse 1. Ending this detailed description of a consecrated body and a renewed mind in action. And ending, thirdly, this discussion concerning opinions which threaten the harmony and the unity of the church in Rome. And here is the thrust of his appeal. In verses 5 through 13, glorify God. By pursuing harmony. It brings us to our text. And follow along then as I pick up the, the epistle. What Paul says. What Paul writes. Again in the fifth verse. Going as far as verse 13. And then as I've already mentioned from verse 14 through to the end of 16. Is his conclusion. Romans 15 verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, 
Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Okay, we've gotten an appeal. I actually want to break it down into three parts. The appeal is the second part. It's surrounded by what? Prayers. Hence, three parts. We have a prayer in verses 5 and 6. May, may the God, he is praying, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a prayer. I want you to notice two things. I want you to notice firstly to whom he prays. Notice the description right at the outset of verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement. Where does he come up with that description? Verse 4. Look at it. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Did you notice the two words? Endurance and encouragement. Now, what does he say in verse 5? May the God of endurance and encouragement. So he is building on what he has just uttered in verse 4. In verse 4, he has made it clear. Look, the Bible, the scripture is the key to everything. You need to immerse yourself in God's word. I put it to you right now. You've heard me say it many times. God's Spirit only speaks through God's Word. You want to hear the voice of God? Read the Word of God. And you will hear the voice of God. We immerse ourselves in the Scriptures. And as we immerse ourselves in the Scriptures, we come up with what? God's will, His commands. We obey them. That obedience is key to endurance. As we immerse, bathe ourselves in the Word of God, we read it, we hear it, we study it, we memorize it, we recite it, we sing it. As we do so, we come up against the promises of God and we believe them. We embrace them. And the result is what? Encouragement. So endurance and encouragement come through the Scriptures. The result is hope. What is Paul now doing in verse 5? He's saying, look, the Bible doesn't have any inherent efficacy. I want you to understand it's really God working through the scriptures. It's the spirit of God working through the written word of God. You want that endurance that the scriptures provide as you obey and persevere in obedience? Do you want that encouragement that comes as you take the promises of God and you make them your own and you make them a present reality? Then understand this will only come from the God of endurance and the God of encouragement. And I want you to understand that it is this God, as he imparts endurance and encouragement through the scriptures, his commands, his promises, that this is going to have a direct impact on the way in which you live with each other. That's his request. Verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you 
to live in such harmony. You see, that endurance and encouragement, and in particular, that hope is key to harmony. Why? Because, my friend, if I'm not living in hope as a Christian, what does that mean? It means Christ isn't reigning in my life. And if Christ isn't reigning in my life, what does that mean? It means I'm at civil war with myself. If I'm at civil war with myself, guess what? I'm not a peach to be around. I'm not much fun to be around. And what is that going to do for the harmony and the unity of the church? Do you see how this is related and connected? He knows that hope is key. Hope hangs on endurance and encouragement. It comes through Scripture, the Spirit of God working through Scripture. And the result is what? Verse 6, that together... You may with one voice, as we worship, corporately, collectively, you might glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his prayer. Now he makes his appeal. Notice the verse, first verse in verse 7. The appeal begins in that verse, goes as far as verse 12. Notice the first word, therefore. And so you're praying for this. Now act on what you're praying. Therefore, welcome one another. That has been the tone of everything he has said going all the way back to the first verse of chapter 14. A series of commands to welcome one another. Don't judge one another. Don't despise one another. But welcome one another. Here comes the appeal. As Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That is the appeal flowing from his prayer. Look at the first, verse in, first word in verse 8, for. In other words, what I have just stated in verse 7, this command, welcome one another, coupled with this appeal, as Christ has welcomed you. Here's my appeal. Here is the example I am setting before you, that Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The mercy of God in Christ resulting in our justification. The mercy of God in Christ leading to our sanctification. The mercy of God in Christ culminating in our adoption. The mercy of God in Christ rooted in an eternal covenant of redemption in which God actually gave us to the Son before the world was even created. That mercy toward us in Christ from God, that is how we were welcomed. And now Paul says you need to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And he proves it now beginning in verse 8 by appealing to Christ's ministry. This is why he came. He came that we might be welcomed. He came that we might welcome one another. And he came to do that for the glory of God. Verse 8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. He came as a Jew, right? He was born under the law. And he did so to do what? To show God's truthfulness to fulfill the law, to fulfill the covenants, to fulfill the promises. But it's more than that. In order to confirm the promises, yes, given to the patriarchs, you think of the Abrahamic covenant, and in order, what? That the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. This is the eternal plan of God realized in Christ. He goes on to make four Old Testament citations. I want you to notice four points. I know this is tricky. 
Oh, we still have to get back into the Old Testament. He's quoting this, quoting that, and I'm not quite clear on how it all fits together. Okay, four points. He's just trying to drive home four points by citing these four Old Testament texts. Number one, he's trying to make the point that both Jews and Gentiles now praise God in Christ. Look at verse 9. Therefore I, it's a Jew speaking in the original context, will praise you among the Gentiles. Verse 10, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, Jews. Still into verse 11, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. So he makes this fourfold quotation from the Old Testament to make the point that now, because of Christ's coming, both Jews and Gentiles praise God. Second thing I want you to notice is this. He makes the point that this praise is rooted, yes, in the Old Testament. Verse 9, he quotes from Psalm 18. Verse 10, he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. Verse 11, he quotes from Psalm 117. What is he trying to convey? He's trying to convey simply this, that look, what's happening now? God welcoming you in Christ and me urging and pleading with you Jews and Gentiles to welcome one another and, 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 the, and the consequent glory toward God and praise for God. I want you to understand that this has always been God's plan. God's plan has always been for the nations. God's plan has always been that he would call a people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And so he goes to the Old Testament, lifts these texts out of there to prove it. That what is happening now is perfectly consistent with what was foretold. His third point is this, that this praise is possible because of Christ. Verse 12, he quotes from Isaiah 11, the root of Jesse, the root of Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's dad, right? David's father. So the root of Jesse was the Davidic dynasty. The first one, David, this, this kingship, this dynasty, this kingdom. With the invasions, Assyrian and Babylonian invasions, what happened to the Davidic dynasty in that kingdom? It was a great tree. What happened to it? God took an axe to it. And all that was left was what? A stump. But Isaiah prophesied what? That a shoot would arise from that stump. A root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. He is citing that text as the reason why Gentiles, now with Jews, those who believe in the Lord Jesus, are praising God. It is because the promised Davidic king has come. He is now enthroned. He is now reigning and ruling over the nations. And he is calling his people from the midst of the nations. He is welcoming them in Christ by his mercy. And Paul is now commanding us to welcome one another to the point where all of these barriers fall down, come away to the glory of God. The last point he's making in this fourfold citation is this, that if Christ has accepted Jews and Gentiles, then they should accept one another. That's it. Welcome one another. This is going to be tedious. How's that for an intro? This is going to be tedious. There's something I want to do. I want you to grab your, grab your Bible there. You're open in Romans, right? Just get it. And I want, you to, I want to take you on a journey. 
in Romans. We're going to stay in Romans. It's a, it's a bit of a journey, a little tedious, but I pray we get, we get the point here. What I want to demonstrate is this, that Paul has been laying the foundation for these verses ever since chapter 1. This is the culmination. It seems to be kind of incidental and insignificant. No, 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 we've missed the point if we think that. This is actually the pinnacle, if you like, uh, the, the end of a foundation that Paul has been setting ever since chapter 1. I want to begin in chapter 3. I want you to notice this. Jews and Gentiles are under the same condemnation. Look at Romans 3, verse 9. What then, says Paul, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, another word for Gentiles, are under sin. You got that? That's the starting point. Jews and Gentiles are under the same condemnation. I want you to get this as well. Jews and Gentiles are subject to the same judgment. Chapter 2. Look at verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Meaning what? He doesn't take notice of the face. That's what the word literally means. That Jew and Gentile are under the same condemnation. Jew and Gentile are subject to the same judgment. I want you to notice thirdly that Jew and Gentile are recipients of the same gospel. Back in chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Recipients of the same gospel. I want you to understand that Jew and Gentile, they're also recipients of the same new birth, regeneration. Back to chapter 2. Look at what we read in verse 28. For no one is a Jew. There he completely redefines what we mean by the word Jew. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit. Not by the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. The same new birth by which Paul actually redefines what it means to be a Jew. Jews and Gentiles, ethnically speaking, recipients of the same new birth. What it really means to be a child of God. They experience the same justification by faith. Chapter 3, verse 29. Now I warned you this would be tedious. This is extremely important to get what Paul is saying in this epistle. Chapter 3, verse 29, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised, that is, the individual who's a Jew, he will circumcise by faith. That's how they will be saved. And the uncircumcised, that's the Gentile, through faith. And so there is only one justification by faith for Jew and Gentile. I want you to notice, I've lost count, but I want you to notice the next thing. Jew and Gentile share the same father. Into chapter 4, verse 11. He, that is Abraham, 
received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. He wasn't a Jew. Abraham wasn't a Jew. I hope we realize that, right? Abraham was Abraham, the first called. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that's Gentiles, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised Jews who are not merely circumcised, ethnic Jews, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And so we have the same father, Abraham. I want you to notice that we have the same promise. Chapter 9. Well, I hope you're getting a flavor for it now. Just how significant this is for what Paul states then in the 15th chapter. We have the same promise, chapter 9, verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, his physical offspring. Not all Jews are actually Jews then. Not all Israel is actually Israel. Not all physical offspring of Abraham are actually his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh. There's no ethnicity here who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring whether they be Jew or Gentile. How do I know that? He goes on to say in verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then he has the audacity to go and quote from the book of Hosea, texts that actually have nothing to do with Gentiles in the original context, but he tells us that this is actually the fulfillment of what Hosea said back there. This is the fulfillment of God's plan. Oh, notice they're part of the same tree. You get that in chapter 11, verse 17. If some of the branches were broken off, so there's only one tree, and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others, you now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. There's only one root. There's only one tree. And we are recipients of the same Mercy, chapter 11, verse 32. For God has consigned all. Who are the all? He has been speaking in terms of Jews and Gentiles in the preceding verses. God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. It is a foundation which he has been laying ever since the first chapter. When we come to the 15th chapter, he now brings it all to a culmination and he wants us to understand this, that all of this is a result of Christ's coming into the world. All of this is the consequence of the fact that Christ has been installed. The Davidic dynasty has been restored. Christ has been installed in that kingdom at the right hand of God. He now rules over the nations. He calls his people, Jew or Gentile, it makes no difference. Black or white, who cares? Anglo, Hispanic is completely irrelevant. Social class, political party is of no consequence at all. There is no partiality with God. He calls his people. 
And in that people group, there are those of every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And this is the culminative demonstration of the mercy of God that he has welcomed us. What's Paul's point? Please welcome one another. Just welcome one another. That if you understand the plan of redemption, if you understand what God has done, is doing, will do in Christ, and if you get even an inkling of what it means to be welcomed by God in Christ because of mercy, you will, his commandment back in verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. He brings us back to a prayer. Remember there's a prayer in verses 5 and 6. There's the appeal in verses 7 through 12. Back to a prayer. He picks it up really in verse 13. Now may the God of hope no longer the God of endurance and encouragement. That was a description that arose out of verse 4. Now he's the God of hope, which is a description that arises out of what? Verse 12, in him will the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Again, what is this point? His point is simply this, living in harmony is contingent upon abounding in hope. Living in harmony is contingent upon abounding in hope. Why? I explained it. Here it is again. If my hope is not fixed on the word of God, it means what? Christ is not reigning in my heart. If Christ is not reigning in my heart, it means my heart is at what? Civil war. If I'm at civil war, what did I say? Some of you kind of went like this when I said it earlier. I'm not much of a peach to be around. Not much fun to be with. And if I'm not much fun to be with, what will be the ramifications for harmony and unity in the context of a local church? It's impossible. Living in harmony is contingent upon abounding in hope. Here's what I want you to get. Seven statements. Going to rhyme them off. With this, we conclude. This is the main point. The main point. If we get this, I think we've got it. Number one, Christ welcomes us for the glory of God. That much is clear. Correct? Verse seven, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He welcomes us for the glory of God. We build this glory grips us. That's the intended result as implied in the text. This glory grips us. It's reminiscent of that incident we have recorded in Luke 17. You remember the Lord Jesus encounters 10 lepers and he sends them away to the priest. Go show yourselves to the priest. And uh, off they went. And on the way, they were miraculously healed. How many returned to give thanks? One. Uh, one, perhaps one of the saddest statements in all of Scripture from the lips of the Lord Jesus, were not ten cleansed, where are the nine? We're not ten cleansed, where are the nine? No, 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 no. We understand Christ welcomes us for the glory of God. When we get it, the mercy of God in Christ, this glory grips us. Building, thirdly, this glory compels us to welcome one another. That's the commandment in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Number four, this glory compels us to worship. And so notice the emphasis beginning in verse 
9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then that series of texts in verse 9, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Verse 10, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. The glory of God will compel us, yes, to welcome one another. It will compel us to worship, to praise God. We can't encounter God without responding to his glory. Fifthly, building, worship leads to mission. Are you seeing the interconnectedness? Christ welcomes us for the glory of God. This glory grips us. This glory compels us to welcome one another. This glory compels us to worship. Worship leads to mission. It's there in verses 8 through 12 as well. That the glory of God is proclaimed through praise, through worship among the nations. He is extolled among all the peoples. And then we continue to build number six. We realize that this is God's eternal purpose rooted in Christ. That's the 12th verse. Quotes out of Isaiah. The root of Jesse will come. Remember, Isaiah is speaking from his vantage point. Paul isn't saying it's yet future. He's quoting it as Isaiah wrote it. The root of Jesse will come. The root of Jesse has come. He has arisen to rule the Gentiles. And in him, all the Gentiles, those who believe in him, are hoping and praising him. And so we see that this eternal purpose is rooted in the Lord Jesus. And the seventh and final statement I want to make, building on the main point, is as follows. We see, well, let me phrase it slightly differently. We better understand our mission at Grace Community Church. We better understand our mission at Grace Community Church. We exist to equip God's people to delight in His glory and to declare that glory to the nations. We see it so clearly. We support and we pray for the Woodalls and Renee and the Grabers and others ministering overseas. We're thrilled when there are teams, teams made up of individuals that go to Guatemala or Provo or China, whatever the case may be. And we understand, and this is, I think, exceedingly transformative. We understand that, yes, these are the means by which we fulfill our mission statement, equipping one another to delight in God's glory, declare that glory to the nations, but equally important, we get it that just how we live with one another is how we fulfill that mission statement. That is the barrier between Anglo and Hispanic, black, white, Jew, Arab, whatever divides us socially or economically or historically, culturally, whatever it is that divides people disappear in the context of the local church. And as the world looks on, they have no explanation for it. How do those people get along? How is it possible? Oh, we pursue the glory of God in the harmony of the church, and we do so as we praise Him, we delight in Him, 
And what a testimony this is to a world divided on so many issues, coming apart for so many reasons, that a group that is not homogenous at all can get together despite the age differences, the backgrounds, the historical context, the cultural differences, and can come together for the glory of God. Is that us? I pray that's, I think we're getting there. But is that us? Grace Community Church, equipping God's people to delight in His glory that we might declare that glory to the nations. Our Father, we do make that our earnest prayer this day. That with us, you might be well pleased. We do praise you. You are well pleased with us and your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray that as we seek to live out lives of obedience, submission to your will, that with this you might too be well pleased. We ask you to conform us to your word. Forgive us as we go astray oftentimes. Forgive us as we can become very narrow-minded in our focus and if not downright self-absorbed. And help us to remain focused on the prize, your son, the Lord Jesus. May he be our all in all. We ask it for his eternal praise and glory. And in his precious name we pray, amen.